traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to The Ancient World. Episode 33, Democracy and Republic, Part 1. Things had not gone according to plan. In 515 BC, Miltiades arrived at the Thracian Chironese to assume his family's tyranny. The narrow peninsula that formed the northern shore of the Hellespont was both strategically located and agriculturally fertile. Drawn by these desirable traits, Ionian and Aeolian settlers had founded 12 colonies on the peninsula during the 7th century BC. However, divided and militarily weak, the cities had proved easy pickings for Miltiades' uncle, Miltiades the Elder, who'd claimed the region for Athens around 560 BC. Charged by Pisistratus with securing the newly won territory, the elder Miltiades had erected a defensive wall at the peninsula's narrowest point near the city of Agora to forestall any incursions from the mainland. Born to the same prominent Philaid clan, Miltiades the Younger had been raised to consider the Chironese a part of his family's inheritance. His own father, Simon, the elder Miltiades' half-brother, was a renowned Olympic chariot racer and favored of the Pisistratids. Since Miltiades the Elder had no male heirs, it was expected that Simon's eldest son, Stesagoras, would one day succeed him. When the elder Miltiades finally died, in 524 BC, Hippias and Hipparchus sent Tesagoras to maintain Athenian control. Unfortunately, he'd proven ill-suited to the task and unable to manage the conflicts and rebellions that sprang up under his unpopular rule. When Stesagoras died in 515 BC, Miltiades the Younger was finally given his chance to govern the territory. An early story points toward a clever, even devious nature. Supposedly, upon arrival at the peninsula, Miltiades affected deep mourning over his brother's death. Prominent local leaders, including many who'd rebelled against Desagoras, came to console him and perhaps begin the new tyranny on a more positive footing. Miltiades arrested and imprisoned all who came. As statements of intent go, this was pretty clear. 
disloyalty to his family would not be tolerated. With his position further solidified by raising troops and forging local alliances, Miltiades could finally look forward to running his Athenian fiefdom as he saw fit. Except, oh yes, except, the elephant in the room, or more precisely, the elephant just across the narrow channel of the Hellespont, was, of course, the immensely powerful Persian Empire. The cities of Ionian Greece, like the rest of Anatolia, had fallen under the Persian shadow decades past. Samos had recently been captured and the tyrant Silasan installed by force of Persian arms. In fact, under the policy of the new great king Darius, tyrannies were being granted to many prominent Greek leaders who pledged to govern their polis in Persia's name. Many coastal cities and islands were already allying themselves with the Persians. Even notoriously independent Miletus was now governed by a pro-Persian tyrant named Histiaeus. For Miltiades, ruling a small and vulnerable territory at the remote edge of Greek influence, the trend was worrisome. In 513 BC, only two years into his rule, the threat became a reality. Messengers arrived at Miltiades' seat of power with the message that he'd been both expecting and dreading. The great king had graciously decided to extend his benevolent rule over the Thracian Chironese. And, an even greater honor, he'd also invited Miltiades to assist him in subduing troublesome Scythian tribes living north of the Danube. Miltiades had no choice but to accept both decisions as fate accompli. Like a rivulet feeding a mighty river, Miltiades brought his forces to link up with the Persian host at the Bosphorus Strait. It must have been a staggering sight. Hundreds of thousands of troops marching across the narrow channel over a makeshift bridge of Phoenician and Greek triremes. The familiar hoplite armies of Ionian tyrants, mixing with groups of strangely garbed warriors from Persia, Media, Lydia, Phoenicia, Babylonia, Egypt, and even more distant and exotic lands. Miltiades was left with little doubt. The great king had finally turned his attentions to the unconquered west. The pretext for the invasion, if one was even needed, was to subdue yet another group of Scythians. As previously mentioned, various Scythian tribes laid claim to a vast swath of Central Asia and Eastern Europe, running all along the northern borders of the Persian Empire. Darius's campaign targeted a group living north of the Danube, along the northwestern shores of the Black Sea, in other words, just north of the Greek territory of Thrace. While I've frequently discussed Scythian activities in the Near East, their contacts with the Greeks are less well documented, aside from the occasional anecdote like Pisistratus employing Scythian bodyguards. Herodotus later characterized the tribes in question as backwards barbarians. Well, of course, they weren't Greek. But there's no evidence that the Scythians had ever presented a direct threat to either the Greek colonies of the Black Sea coast or the Greek mainland. 
which is really just a long way of saying that this war was a purely Persian affair, and Darius really couldn't make any credible claim to be aiding the Greeks against their common foes. Crossing the Danube and moving north into Scythian territory, Darius soon found that the Black Sea Scythians were experts in the same frustrating tactics as their eastern cousins. Guerrilla warfare, evasion, and, above all, refusing to line up and be slaughtered by the Persians. The Scythians instead slowly retreated eastward into more remote territories north of the Black Sea. Relentlessly, the great king followed. In an effort to slow his march, the Scythians blocked wells, attacked supply lines, burned crops, and attacked Persian forces wherever and whenever they were vulnerable. As days turned to weeks, the Scythian tactics began to erode the great king's resolve. Now deep inside enemy territory, the Persian army found no cities to conquer and no supplies to forage. In frustration, Darius sent a message to the Scythian king, Identhyrsus, that he should either fight or surrender. Identhyrsus defiantly responded that Darius was powerless to compel him, since the Scythians had no cities or cultivated lands to be held hostage. Only if the Persians discovered and threatened the sacred gravesites of their ancestors would the Scythians send their full forces against them. And that, read the subtext, just was not going to happen. Even as Darius led his overextended army further eastward, the forces of several Greek tyrants had been stationed to defend a critical bridge across the Danube. A mix of Persian loyalists like Histiaeus of Miletus and reluctant ride-alongs like Miltiades, I'm guessing the small talk around the campfires was fairly strained. Frictions were ramped up when a messenger arrived from the Scythian king Identhyrsus, offering a large payment and other inducements if the tyrants would destroy the bridge and cut off Darius's retreat. The Scythians would then continue to harass the great king's army until, worn down by fatigue, disease, and privation, they'd be forced to either surrender or be destroyed. To Miltiades, this was just an awesome, awesome plan. Along with a clutch of anti-Persian tyrants, he argued forcefully the quite logical point that if Darius wasn't stopped, here, now, his next target would clearly be Greece. Histiaeus, speaking for the opposition, conceded that Greece was likely under imminent threat. But did you guys see the Persian forces? Do you have any idea how large and powerful their empire is? Realistically, the best that could be hoped for was accommodation. Territories that had given themselves freely to the empire had been left mainly unmolested. And didn't many of the tyrants assembled owe their current station to the generosity of the Persian king? If Darius were killed and they returned to their home cities, wouldn't they surely be facing their own exile or death? Histiaeus and his straightforward argument for self-preservation won the day. Having decided to remain loyal, the tyrants next turned to discussing how they could facilitate the great king's departure from hostile Scythian lands, in particular before the brutal northern winter took hold. 
One assumes that Miltiades stepped out for a smoke during this conversation. In the end, Histiaeus decided to send the Scythian emissary back with several pieces of false intelligence. The first was that the Greek tyrants had agreed to his offer, and were, even now, dismantling the Persian bridge. The second was detailed but false information on the location and movements of Darius's army, for the Scythians to use to track them down and destroy them. Meanwhile, the tyrants also dispatched a messenger to the great king's army, with news of the Scythian strategy and a humbly couched suggestion that they make a beeline back for the Danube as soon as possible. The messenger found Darius's forces encamped along the Volga River, far to the northeast of the Black Sea and almost to the Caspian. As might be expected, many troops were already suffering from the ills and hardships of the extended campaign, and without much to show for their sacrifice. Darius's main accomplishment so far had been raising a series of frontier forts along the River Don to prevent the Scythians from returning to their Black Sea home, but otherwise his conquest remained incomplete. Regardless, upon learning of the Scythian maneuverings, the great king decided to declare victory and march his troops as quickly as possible back to the Danube. Once they reached there, Histiaeus organized the speedy and efficient ferrying of the great king's army back across the river to the relative safety of Thrace. Impressed by his loyalty and ability, Darius requested that the Milesian tyrant accompany him back to Susa to join his royal court as a trusted friend and advisor. It was pretty much the standard offer you can't refuse, and Histiaeus was forced to give up his tyranny and pass the rule of Miletus down to his nephew and son-in-law Aristagoras. Over a decade later, increasingly unhappy in his gilded exile, Histiaeus would send a fateful message to his nephew. Tattooing the communication on the shaved head of a slave, then letting his hair grow back, he dispatched the man to Miletus. When Aristagoras shaved the slave's head, per Histiaeus' instructions, he revealed the simple and monumental command to revolt against the Persians. This was the beginning of the famous Ionian Revolt, which would soon lead to the burning of the provincial capital of Sardis and the subsequent violent retribution of the Persian king. Less surprisingly, another major player in the revolt of 499 BC would be Miltiades. After initially capturing several Ionian islands loyal to Persia, then ceding them to Athens, he was eventually forced into Athenian exile to escape Persian retaliation. While the Athenians initially treated him with great hostility, due to his harsh tyranny of the Chironis, Miltiades would later redeem himself by devising the tactics that defeated the Persians in the 490 BC Battle of Marathon. Back in the here and now of 513 BC, Darius recrossed the Bosphorus to winter in Sardis. His army remained behind, on the European side of the strait, under command of the trusted general and original co-conspirator Megabyzus. 
In the spring of 512 BC, on the great king's orders, the Persian general marched out to effect the conquest of Thrace. Divided into numerous tribes with no overarching political organization, the Thracians were powerless to resist the Persian assault, and surrendered one by one to Megabyzus' army. By the following year, the general had accomplished his goal, and Thrace was absorbed into the westernmost Persian satrapy. Immediately to the west, the kingdom of Macedon, ruled by Amyntas I, was even smaller and similarly fractious. In 511 BC, seeing the freight train bearing down on him, Amyntas offered unconditional submission to the Persian king. With Megabyzus's formal acceptance of the king's offer, Persian power was extended, bloodlessly, to the foothills of Mount Olympus. And there, for the moment, the invasion came to a halt. Considering the success they were enjoying, it's not entirely clear why the Persians didn't push onward into the Greek mainland. The history books would certainly be very different if they had. But considering all the Greek territories now under his authority, Darius was likely favored with good intelligence. The great king knew that mainland Greece was populated with numerous powerful Peleus, and that an effective campaign to capture the territory would require meticulous planning. Darius also believed, inaccurately it would later prove, that time was firmly on his side. War and conquest were all well and good, but with each passing day, more and more Greek territories were already pledging him their loyalty, without a blow being struck. Even within the major Greek Peleus, powerful pro-Persian factions were forming, convinced of the inevitability, even desirability, of Persian rule. Given time, all of Greece might drop into Darius's hand like a ripe apple. One of the few rulers with whom the Macedonian king Amyntas kept relations was the tyrant Hippias of Athens, who received news of Macedon's surrender with justifiable fear. The three years since his brother's murder had passed in a haze of unabated anger and increasing paranoia. State murder and oppression had become rampant, and, to Hippias, the resistance it stirred merely justified more brutality. Secluding himself behind a wall of Scythian bodyguards, it was perhaps little wonder that the Athenians began to think that Persian rule might be a preferred alternative. But that, of course, was a fallback position. The Athenians' first impulse had been to turn to those ancient Pisistrated foes, the Eupatridae. In particular, the boldest and most powerful among them, the Alcmaeonids. A year after Hipparchus's death and a year into Hippias's mounting atrocities, prominent Athenians had sent a plea for aid to the exiled Cleisthenes. Eager to take advantage, the Alcmenid noble had dutifully raised a mercenary army and marched on the city. Unfortunately, Hippias had even more formidable mercenaries of his own, who engaged Cleisthenes's forces north of Athens. The only power that might have turned the tide were the Athenians themselves, but either losing their nerve or recalling the less savory aspects of Alcmenid rule, they stood idly by as Hippias crushed the invasion. Did I mention the Athenians were fickle? 
but that attempt only used up one or two of Cleisthenes' nine lives. Later that same year, Cleisthenes moved on to Plan B. Well, actually, he'd already taken a previous shot at power back when he was Archon, so this was technically Plan C. C as in Cleomenes, king of Sparta. Cleisthenes knew that the surest way to eject the tyrant from Athens was at the point of a Spartan spear. And he also knew that, despite Cleomenes' cordial relations with Hippias, the Spartans still considered Athens a powerful rival. What was needed was a means of prodding them into action in a way that would also assure a favorable outcome for Cleisthenes. Fortunately, the Alcmenids had made one major investment that was due to pay off in spades. Their lavish donation to restore the burned temple of Delphi back in 547 BC meant that the priests of Apollo still owed them a solid. And what exactly did Cleisthenes have in mind? Oh, nothing much, only this. Every time a Spartan, any Spartan, but especially Cleomenes, comes to you with a question, I'd like you to give him the same response. It's your duty to set Athens free. How will the harvest be next season? It's your duty to set Athens free. Should I invest in a new olive press? It's your duty to set Athens free. Is my wife cheating on me? Well, you get the picture. By 511 BC, the Spartans were primed to act. Satisfied with the combination of divine sanction and temporal opportunity, Cleomenes sent an expedition across the Isthmus of Corinth into Attica. Unfortunately, he'd underestimated the strength of Hippias' mercenary forces, particularly his Thessalian cavalry, and the Spartans were routed and driven back to the Peloponnese. For a people to whom reputation was everything, that outcome simply would not do. The next year, Cleomenes personally led a much larger expedition against Hippias. This time, the Spartans did justice to their legend, and easily dispatched the tyrant's Thessalian mercenaries. Marching into Athens, the Spartan army besieged Hippias atop the Acropolis. A botched attempt to smuggle the tyrant's children to safety inadvertently delivered them into Spartan hands. King Cleomenes made a single demand in exchange for their lives. Hippias must leave Athens. The tyrant had little choice but to concede. As Hippias went into exile, he may have been comforted by the knowledge that the Athenians seldom remained content with any decision for very long. So, Athens was saved? Well, I guess, if you didn't pay too much attention to the Spartan military occupation, or the fact that their scheming Alcmeonid partner had managed to weasel his way back into a power-sharing agreement with Cleomenes. The rub, as you may have guessed, is that in driving Hippias from power, the co-rulers had lost their single common aim. Cleisthenes wanted an Athens free from tyranny, and perhaps a return to the good old days of Eupatridae dominance. Cleomenes, on the other hand, wanted Athens, if not completely neutered, then at least on a very short Spartan leash. 
it didn't take too long for the split to become formal, as Cleomenes, now back in Sparta, officially backed Cleisthenes' opponent, a rival noble named Isagoras, for the archonship of 508 BC. Rumors quickly spread that Isagoras, a former friend of Hippias, had um, loaned his wife to Cleomenes in exchange for his support. But despite these dubious allegations, Isagoras still managed to swing the election. No doubt the many well-armed Spartan hoplites present throughout the city helped ensure the proper outcome. Then something strange happened. Cleisthenes, thrown from his lofty perch, came down to speak before the citizen assembly. His exact words are unknown, but he certainly had plenty of history, both personal and political, to draw upon. After all, the act for which his family, the Alcmeonids, had originally been accursed and banished had been the killing of the first Athenian tyrant, Chilon. Now they'd also had a hand in driving a second, even more brutal tyrant from the city. But being honest, Cleisthenes must have also conceded his family's role in giving Pisistratus his early shots at power, as well as his personal responsibility for the ongoing Spartan occupation. But the real point was, none of this worked. Monarchy, tyranny, eupatridae infighting, or foreign domination. Why did those have to be the only options on the table? None of these forms had ever given the city the long-term stability, and more importantly, the enlightened moral governance that it truly deserved. Athens was better than this. Her people deserved better. They deserved a system that gave them real justice and a chance to fulfill their own untapped potential. Perhaps only Solon, the great lawgiver, had pointed the way toward a possible solution. The solution was radical. It was untried, and it required a degree of trust that no previous ruler, or ex-ruler in Cleisthenes' case, had ever given to his citizens. Solon had granted all Athenians, regardless of wealth or station, a vote in the Citizens' Assembly. Now, Cleisthenes was proposing something more. That the citizens of Athens bring forward, debate, vote on, and enact all the laws and policies of the city themselves, without recourse to leaders of any kind. The power, all the power, would reside in the people and the city would become a democratia, or democracy. Whether an altruistic flash of insight or a political Hail Mary, Cleisthenes' Plan D for democracy was largely met with the standard reception for radical new ideas, a mixture of stunned befuddlement and violent opposition, particularly among entrenched elites. But before the concept could even start to rattle around in the Athenian psyche, real politic abruptly intruded. In 507 BC, word arrived from King Cleomenes of Sparta that Cleisthenes was to be banished from Athens. His crime, of course, was the original sin of the Alcmeonids, tricking Chilon from his holy sanctuary to his death. Justly fearing for his safety, Cleisthenes fled the city. 
At least it gave him some time to work on his new series of Eupatridae travel books, Packing Quickly for Exile the Alcmenid Way, and Five Star Hotels Just Beyond the Attic Frontier. While officially holding the title of Archon, Isagoras quickly assumed the trappings of tyrannical rule. His main weapon was charging his political enemies with being accursed, a la the Alcmenids, then banishing them from the city and seizing all their property. Before too long, King Cleomenes returned to Athens, with two main items on his agenda— overseeing a further purge of anti-Spartan elements, and brainstorming with Isagoras on a rewrite of the Athenian constitution. While the two leaders huddled atop the Acropolis, rumors floated down that their first act would be to dissolve the Athenian assembly known as the Bull. Word spread quickly, and before king or tyrant realized what was happening, they found themselves surrounded and besieged on the same high spot recently held by Hippias. The citizens of Athens had spontaneously decided that enough was enough. This was their city, and would-be tyrants and foreign occupiers were no longer welcome. The siege was maintained for a full two days before King Cleomenes finally relented. Surly and haggard, the humiliated Spartan king was forced to accept Athenian terms, safe conduct for him and his soldiers to the Attic frontier. As part of the deal, Isagoras was also allowed to flee into exile. His Athenian supporters weren't so lucky. Three hundred of them were summarily put to death. In the summer of 507 BC, Cleisthenes was welcomed back to Athens and elected to the archonship, on the condition that he implement the program he'd previously brought forward. Collectively, the Athenians had decided to join their archon in a leap of faith. It was all the more remarkable since the city's position had never been more precarious. Everyone knew that beyond the city gates, two former tyrants and a Spartan king were all nursing powerful grudges and plotting their revenge. The Athenians didn't just want democracy to work, they needed it to work, and fast. On paper, Cleisthenes' program was deceptively simple. It consisted mainly of three institutional changes— the first was the restructuring of voting blocks, from traditional family tribes to new tribes based on area of residence or deem. In the hope of replacing clan ties with loyalty to Athens, the hundred or so Athenian deems were mixed, matched, and grouped together in an elaborate patchwork arrangement. Under the new system, rich and poor, farmer and urbanite, coast-dweller and plainsman were all welded together into the same tribe, and forced to seek the alignment of their often disparate interests. To reinforce solidarity, citizens were even compelled to replace their family name with the name of their deem. The second change was the expansion of the Athenian bull to 500 members, 50 from each new tribe. Most critically, all members were to be chosen by lot, and could only serve for two non-consecutive terms. Each year, a random cross-section of Athenians would now hold responsibility for funneling important legislation to the General Assembly of Voters. 
This General Assembly, in turn, would convene almost weekly to debate and decide on all matters put before them. All citizens who served in the bull were required to swear a new oath, to advise, according to the laws, what was best for the people. The third, and perhaps most famous, change was the institution of ostracism. Every year, the citizens of Athens would have the right to exile the person considered to be the greatest threat to their democracy. Each Athenian would write his choice on a pottery shard, or ostraki, and whoever got the most votes, provided they exceeded 6,000, would be exiled for a period of 10 years. In a novel twist, their property would not be seized, but instead be held in trust until their return. Stripped down to its most basic elements, that was pretty much it. A few traditional privileges were retained. For example, only the upper classes were allowed to run for high office. On the other hand, every Athenian, regardless of wealth or standing, now had the right to speak in the citizens' assembly. The hope, the one on which the Athenians had wagered their freedom, their well-being, and their very lives, was that a government so structured would be a source of strength to its people. They wouldn't have to wait long to see if their faith was justified. In 506 BC, King Cleomenes took to the field. The forces he led weren't Spartans alone, as if that weren't enough, but also included contingents sent by other cities of the Peloponnesian League. He was also joined by his fellow king Demaratus, who'd succeeded his father, Ariston, to the Spartan throne in 515 BC. To the west, the forces of Thebes marched out in close coordination, eager to avenge their recent loss of Plataea to the Athenians. And to the north, the hoplites of Chalcis, legendary victors of the Lelantine War and destroyers of the archaic city of Lefkandi, crossed the narrow strait from their home island of Euboea to join the Attic assault. Just as he'd once been surrounded atop the Athenian Acropolis, King Cleomenes had engineered the encirclement of Sparta's greatest foe, and soon he'd have his final revenge on both Cleisthenes and Athens. Next episode, the new model army of Athenian democracy will face its first trial by fire, while to the west, the upstart city of Rome takes its own bold step onto the historical stage by putting an end to tyranny and declaring its first republic. But before all that, I'll be taking a much-needed break. I'll be traveling for the next few weeks, and it looks like I won't be able to get another episode posted until around the middle of September. As you're probably aware, we're getting very close to the end of the series. It's looking like one or two episodes more will carry us up through 500 BC. Along the way, I've had a few ideas for a couple follow-on episodes, and I'll plan to create those right after the series proper is concluded. So, long story short, it's looking like around five or so more episodes to go after I get back from this break. And to think, the whole series was originally planned for 12 episodes that would last around three months. Famous last words. Anyway, enjoy the next few weeks, and I'll see you next time on The Ancient World.